So I'm here in the Hope Not Hate archive room again. Um, this is the room where we keep all of all of our fascist and anti-fascist material here at Hope Not Hate, um, stuff dating back to the 1920s. Um, and basically we've started a new series and this is the second in that new series. It's called From the Hope Not Hate Archive. We started it last month where I kind of delved back into the shelves here and found some old newspapers that we keep from the 1920s. These kind of really, really horrible anti-Semitic newspapers. And I looked at them and thought, you know, what lessons could we learn from those around fighting anti-Semitism today? And so in that, we're going to do one of these each month. There's going to be kind of an article that you can find on our website, but also there's going to be these podcasts that go alongside them. And I've got a box in front of me here, which is um, the material that was used for the second in the series. And this is um, material, or it's a box of newspapers, really, um, dating back to the 1970s. And it was a newspaper created by a British campaign or organisation called the Campaign Against Racism and fascism, and this was an organisation that started in the 70s and kind of went on for several decades in different guises. And my colleague Simon Murdoch kind of came into the archive, found these newspapers, and he's written a really interesting article, which you can get online, obviously, and with some pictures that will show you the newspapers I'm looking at now. Um, and it's really, really worth checking them out. These are the kind of big old newspapers, dog-eared, greying, and like you know the pages are greying. But the artwork on the covers is really brilliant, and so I would really, I think, you know, encourage you to go and have a look. But the whole idea of this series is, is that we look what we can learn from history, we look what we can learn from this archive we keep. And right now in this kind of current moment where there's lots of discussion about things like Black Lives Matter and the role and kind of relationship between anti-fascists and anti-racists and how the two can sit together and what we can learn from each other, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism newspapers here in the archive are a really exciting and interesting template to go back and look at, kind of look at what they, these people were doing decades ago trying to marry these two things previously. And so for those of you that are kind of less interested in spending the time to read the long article on the website, what we're going to do is we're going to do a bit of a long read for you. So I'm going to read out Simon's article for you and you can have a look. But I would you know, really encourage you to get on the website and see some of the pictures uh, and find out what these newspapers I'll be talking about actually looked like. Just to let you know, in the article itself, uh, there are some uh, pretty horrible racist terms used that we do quote when we're talking about things the far right have said. So just giving you a little heads up that some of that's in the article. It was not a jackboot on his neck that suffocated George Floyd in Minneapolis, nor a statue of a black shirt torn down in Bristol. Fascism, after all, is not our only scourge. These events exemplify how racism remains deeply embedded in our society and not just confined to Klansmen or Nazis. They remind us of how it is allowed to suffuse our institutions, be in plain sight on our streets and be enacted in our day-to-day -day lives by the far more insidious concoction of privilege, ignorance and prejudice that reaches across society. With estimates that the protests sparked by Floyd's murder have been the largest in the history of the USA and with support around the world, we are bearing witness to discussions and actions around institutional racism and reflections on histories of colonialism that are in some ways unprecedented. All this against a backdrop of a pandemic that has added insult to injury, as non-white lives have, through existing health inequalities compounding COVID spread, been disproportionately hit. The response from the far right, in political office, online and on the streets to this mass movement has been predictable. But whilst their campaigns, harassment and violence continue to be a stain on society, these are never the full measure of hate, as Floyd's death itself ought to remind us. Despite this, those opposing the far right and those opposing racism, societal and systemic manifestations can at times drift apart or rightly be accused of ignoring the other. 
In the present circumstances, it is the anti-fascist movement which must listen to those rallying under the banner of Black Lives Matter and consider how it can be better infused the fight against wider societal racism into its work. Part of this should involve reflecting on and listening to voices from the past who have attempted this before, and Hope Not Hate's archive allows us to do just that. There's no doubting the extremist past of John Tyndall and the National Front's leaders. Twelve years ago, he and Martin Webster were helping Colin Jordan set up the National Socialist Movement in Britain. In 1962, Tyndall and Jordan were jailed for organising, training and equipping a paramilitary organisation, Spearhead. But in 1964, the National Socialists split and Tyndall and Webster formed the Greater Britain Movement, which was specifically anti-black, anti-communist and anti-Jewish. In July 1964, the Kenyan president, Jomo Kenyatta, was assaulted in a London street. For this offence, Tyndall was fined and Webster jailed. In 1966, Tyndall was jailed for six months for illegal possession of a firearm. And in that year, he and Webster helped to organise the National Front. Britain in the 1970s was no stranger to racism or fascism. This was the era in which violent so-called packy bashing and violence against ethnic minorities as a whole grew, but without match protection. The period in which, as the Runnymede Trust report describes, it was clear that black people and ethnic minority communities more generally were over-policed but under-protected. Alongside this, the fascist National Front under the leadership of John Tyndall was growing, culminating in the 1979 election which saw them stand an unprecedented 303 candidates. In such an environment, the need to effectively marry anti-racist and anti-fascist activism was vital, and one champion of this approach was the campaign against racism and fascism. Originally, the publication of the Kingston Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, CAF, was adopted as the publication of the All London Anti-Racist, Anti-Fascist Coordinating Committee, set up in May 1977 by 23 anti-fascist committees in London who joined force. Published bi-monthly, CAF covered both institutional racism and fascist activities in Britain and abroad, as well as advertising campaigns and carried exposés to counter them. It ran from 1977 to 1979 as an independent publication, then till 1988 as a four-page supplement inside Searchlight magazine, before being relaunched as a standalone publication from 1990 to 2004. Calf did not shy away from challenging their fellow anti-fascists' assumptions that they had successfully addressed both racism and fascism, nor were they alone in the assessment at the time. Looking back at the late 1970s in a January-February 1992 edition, Calf quoted the view of an unarmed member of the Bengali Youth Association, a community defence organisation set up to defend and support the British Asian community from racist violence and harassment from all areas of society. The BYI member spoke in 1978 after witnessing, quote, yet another left-wing rally to remove the National Front paper sellers from Brick Lane's Sunday market, part of a community under intense abuse from the far right at the time. Before the organisers of the rally then, quote, left home for the night, he told them, now you've had your curries and cleared your consciences, fuck off back to where you came from. He was criticising what Carf referred to as floating anti-fascism, that neither speaks to the problems of the local communities beyond the threat of the National Front, nor help to organise them on their own behalf. Instead, they argued these anti-fascists were merely swooping in on occasion, engaging in one-off actions that can amount to little more than macho flexing of left muscle, as they put it. While not opposing marches or militant anti-fascism, they added that, quote, we should destroy fascism at its racist roots and not merely react to it, by mobilisations having the backing of community organisations and being followed by the setting up of local committees. 
They directed their criticisms too at the largest popular front against fascist groups like the National Front and the British Movement around at the same time, the Anti-Nazi League, launched in 1977. Though recognising the good it did, Karf argued that the ANL nonetheless lost sight of the societal racism of white people, which, quote, provides the breeding ground for groups like the National Front. After the emergence of the ANL, the London Coordinating Committee running CARF decided against competing with the new anti-fascist leadership and so disbanded in September 1978. Despite this, a committed group continued to publish CARF in the view that they offered the crucially overlooked perspective which could best explain the breeding ground for the far right. Yet CARF's answer was not to reject tackling the organised far right in favour of exposing institutional racism in society. They knew it was necessary to address both, and done in tandem, they strengthened and informed one another. This was made concrete when, in 1979, with sales falling, CARF was incorporated as a four-page supplement into Searchlight, established by this point as Britain's leading anti-fascist magazine. Searchlight, first set up by the pioneering British anti-racist and anti-fascist Maurice Ludmer in February 1975, investigated, infiltrated and exposed the inner workings of the British far right. Hope Not Hate is itself the product of Searchlight, beginning with a campaign under that banner in 2003 and a split from its parent organisation in 2011. Throughout CAF's iterations, it attempted to combine anti-fascist and anti-racist reporting and campaigning. Institutional racism and organised far-right activity would be discussed side by side or blended where relevant. An August-September 1977 edition features a front-page report on the growth of a Ku Klux Klan group in Brighton, whilst the opening double spread features reports on National Front activities next to a report on police harassment of East London Bangladeshi Britons and inadequate policing of attacks on them following continued attacks by the National Front. The same edition discussed, to name just a few examples, racism and government criminal deportations, teachers' protests over National Front meetings, racism in the media, an investigation into notorious far-right figure Lady Birdwood and a report on racist policing at the Grunswick strikes, part of an industrial dispute with the Grunwick Film Processing Laboratories in London's Dollis Hill that ran between 1976 and 1978. A July 1977 report showed the benefits of combining an anti-fascist and anti-racist lens on events to understand the interplay between the far-right and institutional racism. It looked at a National Front attack on demonstrators in New Cross in support of the Lewisham 24, a group of mainly black defendants facing charges of the Sus Law, which enabled police to stop and search people they suspected of loitering in public with intent to commit an offence, which was seen as disproportionately targeting black people. Carf alleged that the Lewisham 24 were arrested in a raid of 60 homes as part of an operation which aimed to crack down on suspected pickpockets. This played into local National Front posters which whipped up fear of mugging, posters that could have been prosecuted under the Race Relations Act but were not. Examining the events in this holistic manner meant readers could see where the police contributed to an environment in which groups like the National Front could thrive. Though the Hope Not Hate archive unfortunately has no editions of CAR from the 1980s, we know that it broke with Searchlight later in that decade and in October 1990 relaunched with the help of London Alliance Against Racism and Fascism, formed in 1989. Copsey claims CAR's reasoning was out of a sense that Searchlight had, quote, discontinued the analysis pioneered by Maurice Ludmer, which established that fascism could only be fought effectively if fought alongside popular racism. In Carf's letter to Searchlight explaining their decision to part ways, they said it was with reluctance that they had chosen to do so and that they hoped there would be ways of working together in the future. They claimed the decision was a result of realising, quote, that our differences are not so much mechanical ones susceptible to logistical resolution, but rather ones that arise from our essentially different understanding of the events unfolding in the world today. As a subscription leaflet from its new incarnation stated, 
Calf is the only UK magazine to situate the rebirth of neo-Nazism in its breeding ground of popular anti-black racism. They had argued for the importance of this perspective since their inception, stating that in the late 1970s, it was not enough to situate fascism historically, ideologically linked to anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. As they added to, quote, take up the refrain of never again, but stop at that point overlooked that something was happening again, if differently. And this needed to be seen in a contemporary perspective, if we are to fight it correctly. To tackle the far right, anti-fascists had to attend to the varied manifestations and targets of racism in Britain that fed one another, not just be wedded to a traditional idea of where and how race hatred manifests. For this reason, in their relaunch, Calf made clear that they were offering a response to hate attuned to the times, addressing state racism and Euro-racism, a reference to what they termed Fortress Europe and the persecution of refugees and migrants entering the continent. They also were early to increase their focus on Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiment, both across society and in the organised far right, though its European and international coverage had been in place since its launch in the late 1970s. Though Calf lost the investigative insight that Searchlight afforded, its attention on the organised far right continued and was extensive and useful. A February-March 1997 edition gives detailed advice on fighting the fascists in the general election. A back cover from a 1999 edition displayed its Diary of Race and Resistance, a long-running feature predating its relaunch, which gave readers a roundup of relevant events and important dates, with subheadings in this case for racist attacks, policing, the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, immigration, fascism, sport and research. It kept other long-standing columns that demonstrated its breadth of coverage, such as Fascist Roundup, Around the Courts and Inquest, which focused on ethnic minority deaths in custody. CAF ran after its relaunch until 2004 under the aegis of the Institute of Race Relations, which still holds digital copies of its second iteration. Combined with its earlier incarnation, the magazine covered a hugely significant period for both the organised far right and societal and institutional racism in Britain, and so remains a treasure trove for understanding how to tackle both together today. The value of looking back at CAF is not simply that it offers an inspiring attempt to address both, however. It also gives us concrete steps we can take as anti-fascists to better integrate these into our work today and learn too from their mistakes. Some of this is about the stories we tell ourselves and the events we memorialise. In an October-November 1996 edition under the headline 60 Years of Fighting Fascism, the writers, Calf rarely gave their names, give a timeline of opposition to fascism since the opposition to Mosey's black shirts at Cable Street to show how we can bring our story up to date. As they wrote, Cable Street was no doubt a political milestone, and it is right that we recall such triumphs. But in asserting the principle, they shall not pass, we should not forget the many other milestones since 1936, when residents, and especially black residents, have come onto the streets to protect their communities. In 1958, for example, West Indian residents of Notting Hill had to defend themselves against attacks from fascists. In 1977, as the National Front held provocative meetings and marches in black areas, residents came out in protest, often to be met by police violence. In 1979, when the NF threatened to hold a meeting in Southall Town Hall, the whole town downed tools and shut up shop to protest at the incursion. The police, who cordoned off the entire area, cleared the streets with extreme violence and Blair Peach was killed by a blow from a special patrol group officer's truncheon. This timeline challenges assumptions about who engaged in anti-fascism, where and when. Though traditional, majority white anti-fascist organisations were involved in some of these, it's important to remember all who were involved.
Cast analysis also highlights, as exemplified in discussions of its early editions, the benefit of exploring the relationship between institutional racism and far-right activity to our understanding of both. In a June-July 1999 article, they show how the statement of authorities in the mainstream can play into far-right narratives and be weaponized by them. In The Politics of Numbers, the authors look at how flawed police recording of racially motivated attacks in Oldham was leading to the growth of an unfounded narrative that white people were being targeted by Asian gangs in the area. This was alongside the growing, negative perception of British Asian-dominated areas after Oldham Council had ghettoised many onto a rundown estate as a result of an unlawful segregation policy in its housing allocation, a policy exposed in 1993. The article also considers how race relations worsened in Oldham after 1997 when the local Racial Equality Council was closed and how, meanwhile, far-right groups, including Combat 18 and the British National Party, were setting up bases in the area. In this climate of growing antipathy towards Oldham's British Asian community, the BNP reported in their party paper with the headline Ethnic Cleansing in Britain and leafleted white people in Oldham with the same propaganda, drawing on the flawed policing statistics. When the Oldham riots would later erupt, Carf echoed their prescient analysis. Quote, Oldham's Asian community is up against a combination of local police chief Eric Hewitt with his dubious pronouncement on anti-white racism and no-go areas, a local press that has provided a platform for racism, and finally, the presence of far-right political parties mobilising the area prior to the general election. We can also learn from Carf's criticisms of the insufficiency of anti-fascist rallies in Brick Lane in the 1970s discussed earlier. This reminds us that effectively meeting the threat of the far right, or of institutional racism, requires that we avoid being wedded to a tactic. In recent years, there have been attempts in the US, UK and elsewhere to smear all anti-fascist activism as a violent, even terroristic threat. This is only the latest example of a long-standing far-right tactic. Yet it is also true that macho, largely performative anti-fascism can occur, and at worst, drown out the voices of those communities who anti-fascists claim to support. Without being rooted in these communities and listening to them, as Carf wrote in 1992, we will not have any real understanding of the nature of racial violence in black communities today. If this message was true then, it is just as true today. Indeed, in the same article, Carf discussed the very approach which Hope Not Hate would be later born out of searchlight to take, tackling the root causes of societal division which can lead to support for fascist groups by working in communities at risk of this division. Listening to voices in affected communities allows better recognition of how racist violence comes from racist culture and how fascism and the far right emerges from society rather than simply encroaching upon it from the outside. The article as a whole, aimed at questioning assumptions about racist violence, encourages anti-fascists to place it in a wider context than just the result of fascist thugs. As they report from 1992, most racist attacks besides are carried out not so much by organised Nazi groups as by local racist gangs. They cite Suresh Grover of the Southall Monitoring Group, who believes that less than 20% of the 520 attacks he dealt with in 1990 had any connection with neo-Nazi activity. Overlooking how racist violence can be the product of a racist culture, not just that of a far-right group, moreover can appease and clear a path for fascism. Describing a series of repeated racist attacks on British Asian shop owners, Carf wrote, It is this type of commonplace, everyday racism which, because it goes unchecked and uncontested by police and state generally, provides the groundswell for fascism. Yet anti-fascist activists tend, on the one hand, to ignore state racism, and on the other, to treat racial violence as though it were a byproduct, a subcategory of fascism.
Part of the solution to this, they suggest, is to look at this wider culture. For example, in, quote, the development of a racist culture in our inner cities where killings of black people are seen as an acceptable part of white gang violence, even in the absence of far-right influence. In addition to this, they discuss the need to tackle the fact that anti-fascism is white-dominated scene. It's the denial of ethnic minority perspectives, here as in the police and the state, they argue, which means that vitally insightful experiences are denied a seat at the table. And so, quote, everyday problems get redefined by a white-dominated left, who can too often apply a kind of anti-fascist rope learning to understanding the causes and solutions to far-right activity. Karf recognised the inextricable and complex relationship between racism and fascism, between societal prejudice and organised hate. Yet they also were not afraid to question anti-racist and anti-fascist orthodoxy where it was limiting our understanding of threats and how to address them. This is what we need in the present, to understand how recent events should be understood in relationship to the far-right and the far-right to these events. This is all the more so given the blurring of far-right activity with manifestations of societal prejudice. I hope not hate we have spoken of a post-organisational turn in the far right in recent years, with activists moving away from traditional parties and street groups to embrace looser groupings who coalesce for events and online campaigns but without formal membership. Yet this analysis, however useful, has generally failed to sufficiently make the connection with everyday and institutional racism, failing to consider how a lone actor loosely engaged with activism may nonetheless be engaged in prejudicial behaviour in their daily life or absorbed it here also. As anti-fascists, we can learn from Karl's example, rooting our actions in an understanding that, as Ludmer wrote in 1976, fascism tries to grow on the dunghill of racialism. We must put fascism and the far right in the context of systemic and institutional prejudice, looking at what allows it to find a home in the first place. We must always consider whether our tactics are best placed to meet the threat. And to do all of this, we must come together more with the anti-racist movement and listen to them. Thank you again for listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to get every episode direct to your device. If you enjoy listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast, please leave a rating or review wherever you are listening from. Doing that really helps more people discover our channel. Thank you as well to members of Hope Not Hate. Your support makes our work, including this podcast, possible. If you wish to join, head to hopenothate.org.uk and click the big red Become a Member button. This episode and all of our episodes are produced and edited by Jake Pace-Laurie.